Welcome. So good to see each and every one of you out tonight. So glad to be here with you for a Wednesday night Bible study. Take your Bibles if you have them and turn with me please to Hebrews chapter number 10. We'll be looking tonight, I think we got finished with verse 25 last week and uh, we'll start with verse 26 and try to go through verse 31 tonight. That'll be our text and we'll get to that in just a minute. But before we get there, I want to tell you a story about something that happened to me many years ago with a man I used to work with. We had just finished eating dinner, and um, me and him were sitting there talking, and we got into a discussion about the Bible. And we were going back and forth on a few things, and I was really enjoying the time talking with him. And he asked me in the course of that conversation, he said, where do you go to church? And I, I told him where I went to church. And he said, well, what denomination is that? And I said, well, it's a Baptist church. Now, since then, over time, I have learned to say, I go to a Baptist church, but I'm not mad about it. And the reason I say that is because I feel like a lot of times over denominational issues, people seem to want to get mad about it. And I don't understand why. I really don't, you know, that... I want you to know if I have trusted in Jesus as my personal Savior, and the man down at the Methodist Church has trusted in Jesus as his personal Savior, I am his brother in Christ, and he is my brother in Christ. And I ain't mad at him. <laughs> and we may see things a little bit different as far as Scripture goes, but that doesn't mean that we can't love one another and serve with one another. And so I like to tell people, I know what I believe and why I believe it, but I'm not mad about it. And, and guess what? You, ought to, you shouldn't be mad about it either. But I kind of felt like this gentleman that I was talking with that day, he was kind of mad. About, he wasn't a Baptist, but he was kind of mad about what he was and what he did believe. And this is what he said to me. He, he rocks back, and I could just got that vibe from him. You know, he was ready to, ready to jump on somebody, and that's kind of what he was going what to do. He rocked back and said, oh, you're a Baptist. You're one of them Baptists that believe once saved, always saved. And I said, yes, sir, I do. I believe that. that once you're truly born again in the family of God, that once, sa once you're saved, you are eternally secure in Christ. And he said, oh, you just believe. You can just go out and live however you want to live, and you're still saved. Now, I want to tell you what I told him that day. I said, listen, that couldn't be further from what I believe. Can somebody say amen? That is not what we believe. That is not what we preach. That is not what we teach. And we don't preach it and we don't teach it because that's not what the Bible says. Amen. See, what I do believe, what I do believe with all my heart, that Jesus is in the life-changing business. And how he does that, first and foremost, at conversion, the, the Bible actually says he changes our heart. And thereby, it changes our lives, changes what we do and what we don't do, changes our desire. There's a change made on the inside that shows up on the outside. And not only do I believe that because it's happened in my life, but I believe that because I see evidence of it all throughout Scripture. Look on the pages of Scripture, look throughout the New Testament, and see that when Jesus meets someone, their lives are changed. They're different than they were before Jesus. Can you say amen to that? And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that tonight. I'm eternally grateful for that tonight. 
Praise God for the change, for the difference made in the life of a believer. Just look at uh, Simon Peter. We all remember Simon Peter. He's probably one of my favorite men to study about in the Word of God. I love studying about him, reading the book he wrote, uh, First and Second Peter. Man, a great man of God that the Lord used in an amazing way. Well, when Simon met Jesus, how many know that Simon was a fisher of fish? But later on, Simon became Peter. Simon, which means that small stone, became Peter, which means the rock of foundation because Jesus said it was upon Peter's statement of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he was going to build his church on. And if you want a good quiet time study, just read Matthew 16 this week. You're talking about a fantastic chapter in the Word of God. That'll give you that story. But Jesus said, you're no longer going to be Simon. You're no longer going to be that small stone. You're going, to be that, you're going to be Peter, the rock of foundation. His name changed because his destiny changed. How did that change happen? It happened because Peter met Jesus. And he changed his lives. That's how this works. Look at Saul, who became Paul. We see Saul in the book of Acts on the road to Damascus. Now, why is he on the road to Damascus? He's traveling there to persecute Christians, to imprison Christians. Matter of fact, not only was he persecuting Christians, but he was aiding in the execution of Christians. It was Saul who held the coats of the men who stoned that great man of faith, Stephen. But on the road to Damascus, supernaturally, he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And Saul, who used to be the foremost persecutor of the saints, the foremost persecutor of the gospel, became Paul, who became the foremost preacher of the gospel, preacher to the saints. Paul then went on three missionary journeys all over the known world at that time. Wrote 13 books, I believe 14 books. In the New Testament, I, I know I can't prove that, but I've told you my feelings on it. I actually believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Paul did more for the cause of Christ, maybe, maybe more than anybody else since Jesus. Amazing man of God. How was that possible? Because he was changed by the power of God. Jesus changed lives then, and the same Jesus still changes lives now. Amen? There'll be a difference. What about James? James was the half-brother of Jesus. And what I mean by that, James was the son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus was the son of God and Mary. Amen? He was the son of Mary and God. Merry Christmas to you, by the way. That's what we're celebrating. The God became a man. Jesus was not only the son of God, but God the son incarnate in human flesh. But he was the half-brother of James. How do we know the whole time growing up, James didn't trust in the Lord? James was not a follower of Christ. He was not one of the original disciples. But what happened? After the resurrection of Jesus, James met the resurrected Christ. You know what he said? Something's different about him. Now, I think he knew before, but I think it was nailed down for him completely after he knew Jesus had conquered the grave. Let me tell you why. Because only God can do that. Only God can conquer the grave. And so James then trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, was actually born again into the family of God, and then became a pastor at the church of Jerusalem and later wrote the book of James. How was all of this possible? Because Jesus changes hearts and thereby changes lives. 
Now, nothing has changed. See, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. You know what that means? The same Jesus who was changing hearts and thereby changing lives on the pages of Scripture is the same Jesus that is changing hearts and thereby changing lives tonight. Same Jesus. He has not changed. He has not grown weak, gotten sick, or gotten old. He's the same Jesus who still has the power to save. But a man, woman, boy, or girl that's truly been saved will be different after they meet Jesus than they were before. Amen? That's why the Apostle Paul wrote, we know the Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, as opposed to being out of Christ, if you're now in Christ, he said, you'll be a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. He's talking about change. The Bible teaches that when we are saved, we are moved from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. We are made alive in Christ according to Ephesians 2 and 1. Can you say amen to that? There's a change that takes place. The Bible teaches that before we meet Christ, before we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and place faith in Him, we are in the dark. But once we meet Christ, we are put into the marvelous light of the Son of God. <laughs> According to the book of 1 Timothy. There's a, there's a difference in light and darkness. Can you say amen? There's a difference in deadness in life. So I, I'm trying to tell you, not only according to the teaching of the New Testament, but evidence found in the New Testament and also evidence of changed lives today, Jesus changes hearts and thereby changes lives. So what I'm trying to say to you and what I was trying to say to that gentleman that I was speaking to at my workplace is that I, I would never say that you just go out and live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do. And you're a child of God. Because if, if you don't have a desire to please God, and if there's not been a change from what you used to be, from how you used to think, and therefore how you now act, if there's not been a change, then you can't say you truly met Jesus. You may have gotten your name on a church roll, but you don't have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You may be religious, but are you righteous? Because there's a difference. There's a change. He changes hearts and changes lives. If you believe that tonight, say amen. Yes. Now listen to me. Change does not mean perfection. Now it will mean that. How I many you know one day when I get to heaven and I'm in my glorified body and, and, and that will be the culmination of my salvation? Then I'm going to be just as Jesus is, perfect as he is. That'll happen in heaven one day. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> Praise God. We will be just as he is. But how many of you know we're not in the sweet by and by? We live in the nasty now and now. And it's pretty nasty, wouldn't you agree? So change does not mean perfection. And it will not mean perfection until we are in glory. 
Can anybody in this sanctuary tonight raise their hand and say, you know what, I'm, brothers, I'm perfect in every way. Do we have any husbands um, that, that would say, I've got a perfect wife, anybody? Any wives that would raise their hand and say, I've got a perfect husband? Danny's trying to bribe Julie right now. I heard him, I seen him whispering in her ear. Any parents that would say, I got perfect kids? Anybody? None of us can honestly say that. None of us. Any kids that could say they got perfect parents? We can't say that. Why can we not say we have attained perfection? I'll tell you why. Three reasons. Number one, we still have a sinful nature. We still are, have that nature that we were all born with, that nature that is bent towards sin, that nature that came from Papa Adam, that we were born into. And because we have that sinful nature, we are tempted by an evil world. For, uh, 1 John chapter number 2, I absolutely love this verse. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 and 16. It's with this world that we live in that, that our sinful nature is therefore tempted. 1 John 2 verse number 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now when he says the world there, I want to define what he's meaning. Because throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, when the Bible uses the word world, it can mean the physical world. It can mean the world of humanity. Uh, and so we need to define what that means in 1 John 2.15. Now when it says love not the world, do you think it's talking about the physical world? Do you think it's talking about the rivers and the rocks and the trees? No. I don't know about you, but man, I love to see the Smoky Mountains, and I love to see uh, the blue waters and sandy beaches. I, I love to see uh, sun sunsets in the evening and sunrises in the morning. And I love to see that starry night sky. And listen, that's all that God has created, and it is good. <laughs> it's good. Nothing wrong with loving that stuff. It's for our enjoyment. Praise the Lord. It, when he says love not the world, is he talking about the world of humanity there? Do you, think, do you think that's what the Bible is saying when it says that? Well, how could it say that? Because if it's saying that, it's in complete contradiction with John 3, 16. For God so loved what? The world. The, what's it mean there? The, the world of humanity. God so loved the world of humanity, me and you and everybody else, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I love making John 3, 16 personal. And you need to do the same thing. For God so loved Israel that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved Andy that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved Kathy that he gave his only, be only begotten son. For God so loved Eric that he gave his only begotten son. See, if you were the only human being in this world who standed in need of a Savior, Jesus loved you enough to come and save you. So in John, in 1 John 2.15, I don't think he's talking about the physical world. I certainly don't think he's talking about the world of humanity. So what is he talking about? How many of you understand that we live in a world that has a system that is against God and against its truth? Amen? How do you know that we 
Do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. And listen to me, evil in high places, wickedness in high places, a world system that is against God and against His truth. And, and John says, do not love that. Do not be conformed to that world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. So when he says love not the world, he's talking about the world system that is against God and against his truth. And look what he says here. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So what the Bible is telling us, it is this world that tempts our sinful flesh. If you believe it, say amen. Yeah. It's amazing. Because we have a sinful nature, because we live in a sinful world. And thirdly, because we have an enemy. 1 Peter 5 and 8 says that our enemy, Satan himself, is like a roaring lion. He's walking to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. And he comes against believers. And he attacks in every way he can through demonic forces and the forces of evil. Lord willing, after Christmas, after I finish with um, the Christmas messages that I want to preach for Christmas time, we're going to talk in the month of January about spiritual warfare and what that means for us. But I can promise you, I can promise you, there is a world against God, God's people, and God's truth. We have an enemy that came to steal, kill, and destroy. And because of all those things, those three things, perfection will never be attained in this life. Now I know I've been around, you probably have too, I've been around a lot of Christians who thought they had reached perfection. You ever been around those folks? Now, they'll bless your heart. I, I've been around a lot of them. But the truth is, if they're honest with themselves and honest with the Lord, all of us know we're not perfect. Well, that creates a great problem. That means we can't Fix our sinful condition. Amen? I do believe the very same grace that saves us initially at conversion keeps us day by day. I do believe that. However, if you think once saved, always saved is a license to sin. Then you are sadly mistaken. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, chapter number 6 and verse number 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know what he says? God forbid. Let that never happen. 
We should want to please God. And if you don't want to please God, you don't have that desire. You don't want to live a life that is pleasing to Him in holiness. Then you need to check up in who you truly placed your faith in. Has there really been a change? However, even though we don't want to sin, we don't try to sin, because we live in a world that is sinful and because we have a sinful nature and because we have an enemy, we will many times fall into sin. Amen? And none of us are going to be perfect. Change does not mean perfection yet. It will one day. I think really to drive home my point of the eternal security of the believer, I want to give you just four things tonight before we look at Hebrews 10, 26. Four things that I know to be true concerning salvation. I'm going to give you some scripture to go along with these. We may not get to read every one, but I do want you to write them down. And I want you to look at them yourself. I want you to know what I'm telling you is the truth. Number one, salvation is a gift. If you believe that, say amen. The Bible says, Ephesians 2 and 8, that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. Salvation is a gift that God gives. Not only does it say it in Ephesians 2 and 8, I know we use that one a lot and rightly so, but also Romans 3.24, brother, if you will please put that on the screen for me. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 24, the Bible says this. Being justified. Now, let me ask you, class, what does justified mean? To be made right. We are made right before God who is holy. How? Freely. Everybody say freely. Now, if something's free, what's that mean? It's a gift. You don't no cost you anything. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't pay for it. It comes freely. How? By the grace of God. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is Jesus who redeems us by his grace. It is a gift that God gives. Not only Romans 3.24, but probably one of my top four or five verses uh, of all time. John 1.12. John 1.12. This is so good. Look what this says. As, <clears throat> excuse me. Many as received him, to them gave he power. Everybody say power. That word power in John 1.12 is the Greek word exousia. You know what exousia means? The right. The right. The right and privilege. I love that. Let's read it like that. But as many as received him... To them gave he the right and privilege to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. That that may be the most powerful part of the verse, at least for us. Guess why? Because we are the ones who believed on his name. We wouldn't hear when Jesus was walking upon the earth. We wouldn't there at the cross. We wouldn't there at the resurrection. We didn't see him the 40 days after he resurrected as he ministered to over 500 people. We didn't see all that then. But we have believed by faith on his name for salvation. And the Bible says we too have been given the exousia, the right and the privilege to become God's son or daughter. Now, why is that so important? Because before I met Jesus, before I received this gift I had no right to call myself God's son let me tell you why folks I was a sinner lost and undone and on my way to a devil's hell 
I had no hope. I was without God in this world. That's what Ephesians 2 says. And it's right. It's right. That's where I was. I couldn't call myself God's son. The only way I have the right to call myself God's son is through the redemption of Christ. And that all is made real to me as I received him. And that is made real to you as you receive him. What are you doing? You're receiving that gift of salvation. Amen? <laughs> it's a gift. See, really what I'm trying to say, salvation is a gift. Therefore, if you can't earn your salvation through your self-righteous works, how can you keep your salvation through your self-righteous works? Does that make sense to you? Folks, I couldn't earn this gift, and I can't keep this gift today. I don't keep myself saved by what I do. I am kept, not in who I am and what I do. I am kept by Jesus himself. And we'll look at that more in depth in just a minute. Salvation is a gift. Number two, salvation is by grace. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Very powerful verses here. For the grace of God that brings salvation. So what, according to Titus 2, verse 11, what brings salvation? Salvation is by, hath, and it has appeared to all men. Watch this now. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. How? In this present world, verse 13. Looking at that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So what is this saying in Titus 2 and 11 through 14? Not only are we saved by grace initially at conversion when we place faith in Jesus, but listen, we are kept by grace as he helps us to grow in our faith and become what God has saved us to be. All of it's by grace. Saved by grace, kept by grace. It's all by grace. Now, why am I stressing this point? Because if we say it's anything else that brings our salvation, first of all, it gives you false hope. There are people who believe they earn their salvation and keep their salvation by their self-righteous works. I'm going to tell you something. You'll be sadly mistaken when you stand before the Lord. There are people who think church membership is what makes you saved and a part of the family of God. Let me tell you something. Like I said before, you can have your name on a church roll here and not have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. I believe there's going to be a lot of good Baptists in heaven. I believe there's going to be a lot of good Baptists who never make it to heaven. Why? Because they was church, trusting in church membership here. It gives you false hope. But let me tell you what else it does. It takes glory away from Jesus. If anything else could save me, why did I need Christ? If I didn't need Christ, why did he come to this earth? 
Why did he suffer for me? Why did he go to the cross? If I could have been saved through baptism, if I could have been saved through good works, if I could have been saved through church membership, all of that was going on when Jesus got here. You don't believe me? Go back and read in the book of John. John was baptizing in the river Jordan when Jesus got here. They had religion up to their eyeballs when Jesus got here. The Pharisees were in the temple every day when Jesus got here. None of that was enough. That's why Jesus came here. And so to say anything else brings our salvation, takes glory from Him, that's wrong. Salvation, <clears throat> excuse me, is by grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor toward us. So what I'm trying to say is salvation happens because of God's favor lavished upon us, not because of our favors that we do for Him. Do you understand me? Salvation is a gift. Salvation is by grace. <clears throat> Excuse me. Salvation is made possible because of the goodness of Jesus. Not my goodness. And not your goodness, friend. Now I'm glad you're good. But your goodness by itself is not enough. Dr. Adrian Rogers, one of my favorite preachers of all time, he always said this. I love it. He said... Satan would just as soon send you to hell from a church pew as he would the gutter. He's right. He's right. Billy Graham in the mid-1980s was quoted as saying he believed upwards of 70% of the church was lost. I'm not saying Billy Graham had insight and to how many was saved is how many was lost. But I do believe if there's ever been a man of God, Billy Graham was one. If there's ever been a spirit-filled man, Billy Graham was one. If there's ever been a man that had his thumb on the, on the heartbeat of the, of the world and the church and the current condition of people, I believe it was Billy Graham. I believe he was on to something. That's why Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life. Broad is the way because many there be that find it. And narrow is the way because few there be that find it. We cannot trust in our goodness. We cannot trust in what we have done or don't do. We cannot trust in any of the things that men want to trust in. We must trust in Christ. We must. We don't need churchianity. We need Christianity. Bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. His goodness, His righteousness is enough. Romans 9.30. Watch this now. Romans 9.30. What shall we see then? that the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness. This verse ought to speak to you. Let me tell you why. You're all Gentiles. So am I. And he says there was a time when Gentiles followed not after the righteousness of God. They knew nothing about the righteousness of God. They were a pagan people worshiping pagan false gods. He says, but they did not follow after righteousness, have attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. 
Faith in who? You know what that verse is saying? We attain righteousness by faith in Christ. That's why I'm telling you. Salvation is not because of my goodness, but because of His goodness, His righteousness. Romans 3.21. Look at this one. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness without the law. It's not about keeping a set of rules and regulations. It's about trusting in Jesus and His righteousness being imputed to you. Righteousness without the law. Everybody see it? Salvation is a gift. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is made possible because of the goodness of Jesus, not our goodness. Number four, Jesus himself said we are eternally secure. Do you know that? And if he says it, well, praise God, I believe it. Look in John 10. This is just one instance. John chapter 10 and down to verse number 25. Jesus says it pretty plain right here, man. Uh, Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Verse 26. But you believe not because you are not of my sheep as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And they follow me. And they what? See, I don't believe we, a true born-again believer just goes out and lives however they want to live. I think a true born-again believer wants to follow Jesus. You've got a desire to follow Jesus. Sheep, follow the shepherd. That's what he's talking about. Verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life. Praise God. Eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Verse 29. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Wow. You see it? He said, I give them eternal life. Let me ask you something. When does eternal life begin? Moment of salvation. Moment of conversion. That's when your eternal life starts. Now, if it's eternal, when does it end? If we're talking about an eternal span, are there stops and starts in eternal? It's eternal life. It's not a lot of life. It's not most life. It's eternal life. Everybody see that? Isn't that good news? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Eternal life. John 3, 16, the verse I quoted a minute ago. Everybody knows that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. Eternal security of the believer. If a man, woman, boy, or girl has truly been born again, you will receive the desire from the Holy Spirit to please God. And when you don't please God, 
Let me tell you what's going to happen. You will experience the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I've been there. You know what David said about the convicting power of God? He said, Lord, it's like you have broke my bones. I've been there. Anybody else just get sick of yourself sometimes? I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I just get sick of me. I'm like, Lord, I am so sick of falling back into things that you've delivered me from. How about y'all? I am so sick of losing my temper. I'm so sick of pride and arrogance. I am so sick that old sinful nature that creeps back up on me sometimes. Praise God for grace. Amen. Lord, I'm so sick of worry and doubt. You know, if you boil it down, that's really a sin too. Not really, it is. Not, I don't even want to make light of that. It is, because worry is a lack of faith. Doubt is certainly a lack of faith, and that's all sinful. Amen? So sometimes I just get sick of me. Praise God for grace. Not only the grace that saves, but the grace that keeps. Matthew 5.16, the Bible says, that the born-again, blood-bought believer will do good works so that the Father in heaven might be glorified. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's why I keep telling you, good works are not the reason for our salvation. Good works are the result of our salvation. Amen? It's all about Jesus, folks. He's the one who saves us, and he's the one who can keep us saved. Praise the Lord. Why am I sharing this with you tonight? Look in Hebrews 10, 26. I'm going to do this fast. Y'all hang on. You believe me, brother? Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now, the reason I've just shared with you what the Bible says about eternal security of the believer is because Hebrews 10.26 is normally the verse that the person who believes they can lose their salvation is always going to point to. This one and about one or two more. Now the only problem with that, when you're using that verse in Hebrews 10.26 to say you can lose your salvation, you're taking that verse completely out of context. Now, if you hear nothing else of what I said tonight, hear this. If you're going to study the Bible rightly, context is king. What is context? What was the Bible saying then? Who was the Bible speaking to? What was going on in that time? And then if you really want the Bible to burst a flame in your hand, what does this mean to me? Amen? Context. If you don't keep any document in context, you can make it say whatever you want to make it say. If you don't believe me, look how some congressmen and congresswomen and senators read the Constitution. How can you have the same document 
and two different sides see something completely different. One side's taking it out of context. Maybe both sides at certain times. I'm just telling you, any document must be read in context, with context. What is the context of Hebrews 10.26? You remember when we started talking about the book of Hebrews and the reason that, um, who I believe the Apostle Paul, but we certainly know it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Why did the Holy Spirit give us the book of Hebrews? Because these Hebrews believers that this was written to, these Jewish believer, believers that this was written to, was under immense persecution during this time. And really what they were thinking was this. Well, if we are being persecuted as Christians, and the Jews, what, what we used to be, Right? We used to be under the Jewish faith. They're not being persecuted. What I'm going to do is go back to the Jewish faith. So some of these uh, so-called Christians, or at least professing Christians, were going back and sacrificing at the Jewish temple. They were sacrificing like they always had under the law. And so what really the writer is doing here is saying what you're doing, going back and sacrificing under the law in the temple, is willfully sinning. And really what that was, was evidence that these people, some of them at least, had never truly trusted in the finished once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. That's why he says in Hebrews chapter number 10, if you remember down in uh, verse number 12, for this man, meaning Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. He's driving home the point over and over and over. Jesus died for our sins once and what? For all. And he's saying, if you reject what Jesus has done for you and go back to the old way of living under the law, you have no sacrifice for your sins because you've rejected the only real sacrifice for your sin. You see that? Everybody getting it? Look at verse 27. It goes even deeper. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries Scary verse. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Verse 29, watch this. Of how much more sore punishment suppose ye shall be thought worthy of who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. Listen to this verse. Listen to what this is saying. And hath counted the blood of the new covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. He asked the question, how much more are you going to be punished if you trodden underfoot the blood of Jesus? What he's saying is if you don't trust in his sacrifice, if you treat it like trash on the sidewalk and walk on it, Counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he sanctified an unholy, an unholy thing. What he's saying is, if you don't believe in the sacrifice of Jesus, you count it as not enough, as an unholy thing. Verse 30 may be the scariest verse in the Bible. 
For we know him that he has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Verse 31, watch this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Listen to me. Listen to me tonight. Make sure you don't trodden underfoot the blood of the Son of God. Make sure you don't count the blood spilled for you as an unholy thing. Get real with Jesus. Get right with Jesus. That's what he was telling those people. And folks, that's what I'm telling you. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Do you believe it? Serious business. He's not talking to people who were saved and lost their salvation. He's talking to people who were never saved and were trying to gain their salvation under the old covenant that was done away with. Listen to me. Jesus is the way. And he's good. Trust him. Trust him. And listen, folks. That's the message we've got to preach to this world. Everything Jesus did was enough. Nothing else is necessary. And I want to encourage someone here tonight. See, I feel sorry for people who don't know the truths of the eternal security of the believer. Because a long time I struggled with that. I didn't know what the Bible said about it until I got to reading for myself. Really digging. Because what happens when you don't know these truths of the eternal security of the believer is you're saved one minute and you lost the next. And you think, well, if it's based upon what I do today, if I do pretty good today, maybe God's going to say, okay, we'll sweep some of the little stuff under the rug and we're gonna, you're going to be good today. But tomorrow, if you really blow it, well, you've just lost all the peace you had the day before. And it's a never-ending cycle over and over and over again. Let me ask you something. You cannot gain your salvation by works. How many bad works you got to do to lose it? Is this making sense to you? I'm just trying to tell you, that was never God's plan. Jesus saves us. It's a gift he gives, and Jesus keeps us. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to serve him. Amen? That makes me want to bring him glory through good works. That makes me want to go out and be the hands and feet of Christ every day. He's done it all. I trust in him. Any comments or questions?